Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, Paula and I would like to thank all of you for your continued support. If you are new to our podcast, the best ways to support us is to tell a family member or a friend. Leave a five-star review, and also consider becoming a Patreon member by going to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Stevie Utter, and with us as always is our storyteller and award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal writing stories just like this. Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. On the 4th of July in 1946, folks who lived near Port Clinton along the Lake Erie shore got a show they were not expecting. It started as a plume of black smoke arising from an ancient sailing ship that was scuttled about a half mile from shore. As the holiday wore on, the smoke grew into a full fire and locals took their boats out to get pictures of the burning spectacle while thousands of others watched from shore. By the next morning, only a few inches of the deck remained visible above the surface of the lapping lake. It was never determined who started the fire, though there have been guesses. And frankly, it wasn't much of a loss, financially speaking. The ship had barely made it to Port Clinton the year before when it sunk into the muddy bottom there, most of it already having been cannibalized. Badly deteriorated, ribs showing, it already looked like a zombie ship out of a horror movie. But what the fire could never consume was the history of this unusual vessel. Born in the Southeast Asian country, formerly known as Burma, before being put to work housing convicts in Melbourne, Australia. So exactly how does a 19th century floating prison from down under become a fireworks show for 20th century Ohioans? Stay with us as we tell the life's journey of the success.
The British became a world power thanks to the might of their navy. If you're a small island who wants to rule the world, you'd better have the ships to take you there. So when the British conquered and colonized countries, they often gave thought to what resources they needed. And one benefit to taking over Burma, that's a country we know today as Myanmar, was its abundance of wood. Some of Britain's biggest seagoing ships could consume up to 70 trees, and Burma's teak trees were coveted for their natural water resistance. That's how the success came to be born in Burma. It was built there in 1840, 117 feet long, powered by the sails of three masts, and intended to carry trade goods around Southeast Asia. They painted fake gun ports on the ship so pirates would think twice about attacking her, but she wasn't really armed. Of course, sometimes we don't grow up to be what our parents expect, and after just three trips as a merchant ship ferrying products around India, the ship was sold to some folks in London, who turned it into an immigrant ship for taking customers to Australia. Now, Australia is famous for being the place where Britain used to send its convicts under a punishment they called transportation. An undesirable would be put on a ship and sent to the big down under to get them off the English island. That's not what success was used for. By the 1840s, people in England were relocating to Australia of their own accord for a variety of reasons. And the success was one of the ships that conveyed them there. On one of these voyages, success sailed into Sydney the week before Christmas of 1849, filled with families who had survived the Great Famine. Now, the success's time as an immigrant ship ended on May the 31st, 1852, when something totally unexpected happened. She pulled into the port in Melbourne, Australia, and was immediately abandoned. It was the height of a gold rush happening in Victoria, and the crew deserted their posts to go seek their own fortunes. The ship sat there languishing for a year or so, stuck in the harbor with no place to go and no one to take it there. The gold rush led to a period of extreme prosperity for the Australian colony. More immigrants came in. The population boomed. But growing populations also usually mean growing crime, especially with all of that gold in people's pockets. Australia's prisons were overflowing. And so the government of Victoria came up with a unique idea. How about those abandoned ships in the harbor? So in 1853, the merchant ship turned immigrant carrier became a prison, one of five ships to be converted this way. The masts came off, the ship wasn't going anywhere after all, and a new deck was added. The two bottom decks were built with rows of cells on either side, 80 cells in all, with metal bars for doors. 
The lower deck had three-foot by six-foot cells for single prisoners who didn't mix well with others. The middle deck cells were a bit larger, but still crammed with three prisoners each. Life was so much better for the middle deck prisoners who could go ashore and help with public works projects like building roads. The lower deck convicts, however, only got to see the sky for one hour a day during a walk on the deck, always wearing attached ankle chains that never left their feet. Conditions for everyone, however, were trying at best. In the winter, it was cold. In the summer, unbearably hot. And when John Price was made superintendent of Victoria's penal establishments in 1854, it became unbearable, period. Price had a reputation for being cruel and brutal, and eventually the convicts who lived on the success had enough. On March the 26th, 1857, Price visited successes convicts who had been assigned to work in a quarry at Williamstown. He was accompanied by a small number of guards, but they were way outnumbered. In hindsight, it was not a smart idea to take any number of guards to a site where prisoners had access to unlimited weapons, the rocks around them, and the hammers they had been given to break them. As Price stood in the quarry, hearing complaints about lack of food rations for the hard labor, prisoners jumped him and beat him in the head with rocks, then chased the guardsmen away, stoning them. Price, still alive, tried to run himself, but he was taken down with a barrage of swinging hammers. He died of his wounds the next day, and seven prisoners from the success were convicted of his murder and hanged for the crime. There were a number of memorable convicts who lived aboard the success. Owen Suffolk was one of them. Often called the prison poet, the thief and forger was transported to Australia from London. He wrote a book called Days of Crime and Years of Suffering while he was behind the bars of the success, and he published his effort after his release. His book is still considered an important contribution to Australian literature for its depiction of the behavior and treatment of criminals in the Victorian era. Then there was Mad Dan Morgan, a bush ranger. Bush rangers were escaped convicts who lived a life of robbery in bush country. Some say he was among the men who attacked the prison director, John Price, but he was not convicted of that. Anyway, they've written books and made movies about this guy. He's been described as the most bloodthirsty ruffian of all the bush rangers. After a few years as a convict vessel, the success turned another page. It became a stores vessel and anchored on the Yarra River where it sat for the next 36 years. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. 
Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This ship had more lives than a cat. And in 1890, at the grand old age of 50, she was reinvented yet again. A man named Alexander Phillips bought her with the intent of making her a barge. But so many people kept approaching him, asking if they could look inside the former prison ship, that he realized maybe he could make more money giving tours. So he got together with a group of investors and they refitted the ship as a traveling museum, offering a glimpse into a past that was pretty awful, but one they could even embellish more with blood and gore. They put wax effigies of prisoners on board. Wax museums were really in vogue at the time and added a few things that didn't really exist before, like whipping posts and a salt bath said to have made whipped prisoners suffer even more. There's no evidence anyone was ever whipped on the ship or bathed in salts, but hey, it made for a good story. They even employed a former prisoner, bushranger Harry Power, as a tour guide. Harry Power was an associate of Ned Kelly, Australia's version of Jesse James. The investors put a mast back on the ship so it could sail overseas, and plans were made to take it to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. But something intervened. The ship was docked in Sydney, and when word got out that the ship was going to share this horrible history with the rest of the world, people snuck onto the ship to vandalize it. You see, many, if not most, of the people who lived in Sydney were descendants of criminals, those convicts that England had transported a century earlier. And that memory was still fresh enough to embarrass them. An article about this read, A gang of Sydney residents stealthily boarded her to revenge themselves for the outrage on their pride, 
caused by the exhibition of their ancestors, and all of the wax figures were mutilated beyond repair. Anyway, the wax figures were replaced, but again the ship was boarded, and this time sunk. However, it's a mystery by who. Some say the vandals were back. Others believed the investors had the ship scuttled after believing vandals had destroyed every hope for an international tour. They say one man's trash is another man's treasure, and a year after the ship was sunk, a new group of entrepreneurs bought and refloated her, then set sail for Great Britain. There, the Brits were fascinated, and the tours did well. But like many theme-specific museums, it ran its course and crowds fell off. But there were audiences who hadn't seen it yet. And in 1910, an American, David Henry Smith, thought all the success needed was a change of scenery. Smith was in London selling zippers, of all things. But as a salesman, charisma was his craft. He talked some hotel investors back home in Indiana to buy the ship and sail it across the Atlantic. Now, the ship had to be prepared for this big journey, so it was refitted at Glass and Dock in Lancaster, England. Smith hired a real sea captain for the vessel and even got the Italian inventor Marconi to install one of his wireless radios on the ship. Smith may have been born a Midwest farm boy, but salesmanship was in his blood. He knew how to entice a crowd. He outfitted the ship's crew with British naval uniforms. And once he got to America, at every port along the Atlantic, he prepared fitting welcomes in advance by offering special showings for city officials, buying billboards and ads in newspapers. And the success was a great success. He also liked to set up elaborate stunts, a very effective way of keeping people coming back. He offered $100 to any woman who could remain confined for one hour in the black hole. That was a solitary confinement cell, two foot square, and designed so the prisoner could neither stand nor sit. A student nurse from Somerville took up the challenge, and she won gaining some fame by staying in the black hole for 30 hours. David Smith also bet Houdini, that famous escape artist, that he wouldn't be able to break out one of the success's cells. On June the 4th, 1913, Houdini took him up on that bet. Smith first took Houdini to the black hole, to which Houdini said, I wouldn't go in your black hole for a thousand dollars. So instead, Houdini was locked into one of the lower deck cells, where he was surrounded by that ancient teak wood that was six inches thick. And for good measure, behind the locked cell doors, he was manacled to a ring bolt that was attached to the hull. It took Houdini one hour and 45 minutes to escape. The New York Evening Telegram reported about it. They wrote, In some mysterious way, he gained his freedom through one of the portholes of the old ship. And the first news of his escape came from the hundreds aboard and ashore when, 
with a cry of triumph, Houdini appeared, broken chains and fetters still clinging to legs and arms, dived into the waters of the Hudson and swam about until picked up by a boatman. Smith paid up his $1,000 bet. In 1915, the ship was sailed through the Panama Canal and taken up America's West Coast for a brand new audience. And events like San Francisco's Panama Pacific International Expo. When Smith decided to bring her back east, World War I was on, and there were fears of having her out on the open sea. So he wanted to move her into the middle of the country and up the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. Ocean-faring boats are not designed for the shallow rivers of mid-America. News reports at the time said she would be the first ocean vessel to attempt the Ohio River. But they were able to fix the ballast enough to get her most of the way. At one point, she ran aground on the Ohio River in West Virginia and got stuck there for months, waiting for the river to rise enough to move her again. During the war, Smith wanted the success to be seen for more patriotic purposes, so it was reinvented again, this time as a recruiting station. It docked in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, where would-be Marines came to enlist. Then it continued life as a tourist attraction on the East Coast again, and then back to the Midwest. Probably the height of its popularity was when it docked in Chicago in 1925. Remember, this is the time of the Roaring Twenties. There was a general sense of happiness and contentment in the country and a desire to enjoy leisurely pursuits. Smith likely made his first million during the success's time in Chicago. The ship made the rounds through the Great Lakes. They even made a big splash when they arrived in Cleveland in 1928. In a completely unscheduled activity, the crew of the ship spotted and retrieved the remains of an unidentified homicide victim that was floating in the mouth of the river near Superior Street. Then the Great Depression hit. The ship did make it to the 1933 Chicago World's Fair, but this now 93-year-old wooden ship was extremely expensive to maintain. So Captain Smith decided to sell it. After a decade on the Great Lakes, it found a new permanent home in Cleveland. The owner of a Cleveland printing company bought her and docked her, and a South African native named Harry Van Stack, who had been giving lectures about the ship since 1925, moved to Cleveland to stay with her. But she was in such disrepair, and finally she was deemed unseaworthy. And when World War II started, the owner was told, get her out of Cleveland's harbor. So she was sailed from Cleveland to Sandusky, where the intent was to sell her for scrap. Apparently, there's a story that the owners drove the route from Cleveland to Sandusky along the shore, expecting the ship to sink, and she wanted to be sure that her husband would have a lift home. 
But the ship wasn't scrapped. It grounded a mile from the Sandusky shoreline and sat there for a couple of years, becoming an eyesore. In the winter, Lake Erie would ice over between land and ship, and local explorers simply walked over the ice to reach it and claim parts of the ship for themselves. There are a lot of people in Sandusky and the surrounding area who no doubt have a part of the ship packed away in the basement or the attic. And then a new would-be savior came to the rescue. His name was Walter Colby from Port Clinton, a colorful local eccentric and a marine salvager. It's unclear what his long-term intentions for the ship was, but the most important business at hand was trying to get the ship from Sandusky to Port Clinton. Colby was miraculously able to raise the ship enough to get it off the sandbar. Pictures showed how strange that this thing could ever happen. There were so many boards of the ship's sides that were missing. The ribs were visible in places. But with the help of a tug, the remains of the ship were pushed and pulled until they hit bottom in 16 feet of water just east of Port Clinton Harbor. That was as far as the success would ever travel again. It was less than a mile offshore, and just as in Sandusky, winter froze the lake and enabled people on ice skates to mosey on up to the ship, climb aboard, and remove whatever they wanted. Someone even brought a saw and lobbed off the ship's figurehead. On July the 4th of 1946, people around Port Clinton noticed a plume of black smoke rising from the grotesque skeleton of the ship that was half sunk offshore. A light 10 miles per hour wind fanned the flames and the ship began to burn. It provided an entertaining visual throughout the afternoon and into the night. Local boats gathered around it. People drove to the shore to see it and take pictures. It was a pseudo-fireworks show for the holiday. Over the years, the little that remained behind, above the waves, were washed away. And winter ice crushed and removed more and more bits as the decades went on. The rest of the ship still rests on the bottom of Lake Erie. As a matter of fact, in the 50s and the 60s, reportedly, there were days the lake got so low that a little tiny part of it was able to peek up above the surface. Since then, a few intrepid divers have found its remains, though its shallow, muddy grave offers very low visibility. As to what started the fire, there is no official answer about that. Some have attributed it to unnamed vandals, but it's also been said that the Coast Guard told Walter Kobe he needed to get his ship out of there. A popular guess is that he did just that. Some of the research in our story tonight comes from a talk that Rich Norgard gave to the Ottawa County Historical Society a decade ago. I found a YouTube video of it online. Norgard, who spent years researching the ship, said people have shown him lots of objects from the ship that locals have preserved. They remain today, ranging from a letter opener fashioned from a wooden plank to a coffee table 
made from a jail cell door. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. Also, for more shows like ours, head on over to killerpodcasts.com. We are a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. I, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.